As we continue our series on what is the gospel, today we're going to talk about what it means and what it looks like to respond to God's offer of grace and redemption through his son Jesus. And this is such an important part of our gospel presentation. Right? This, this is kind of where it, the rubber meets the road and, and we're called to, to respond to do something about what God has done. What he offers to us in his son Jesus both elicits and demands a response on our part. What I want to do for just a few minutes is just retrace where we've been leading up to this call to action here. What, what have we covered so far? Well, let, let's talk about that. The first point of the, the Christian gospel message is that God is in charge of the world. He rules the world because he created the world. So like a potter with his clay, God fashioned the world just into the shape that he desired with all of its amazing details. He made it, and therefore he owns it. And that's good news, because God is a good God. He's a very good God. He is perfect in love and in holiness, in righteousness, in justice, and in order. In other words, God is the kind of king that you want to be ruled by. His self-giving and kind demeanor is not only unmatched, it's unchanging. He cannot be anything but good. And this good God is a God of relationship. That's how his love is expressed. God exists eternally as a, a Trinitarian relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever loving one another, forever glorifying one another, yet existing as one God. And this God, this good God, also made us. And he made us to look something like himself. We are made in his image. And he made us to be relational as he is, to have relationship with him and to have relationship with one another. And as the sort of the, the high point of his creation, he called all of creation good. But when he made mankind, he called it, he called us very good. He, he, he put us in charge of the world that he had made to steward it as his vice regents, to, to care for it, to be responsible for it, and to enjoy all of its beauty, all of its goodness. He appointed us to supervise and look after this world, but always under his own authority, always honoring him and always obeying his directions. So as we look at the beginning chapters of the Bible, we see this, this beautiful picture of creation and relationship and love and harmony and perfection. It, it all sounds rather ideal, right? You've got God in heaven, you've got people stewarding the world according to his directions, and everything is right. Everything is, is good. Everything is okay. There's nothing wrong in this world. That's what we were made to experience. God and his goodness, relationship. It's all beautiful. But we, of course, we, we know that we look at the world that we live in today and we say everything's not right with our world. Obviously, there's something that's gone awry, and that's the sad truth. From the very beginning, men and women everywhere have rejected God. We've rejected God by doing things our own way, and we all do this. 
All of us are guilty of that rejection. We don't like someone telling us what to do. (laughs) We don't like the idea of anyone having authority over us, least of all God. And so we rebel against Him in lots of different ways. We ignore Him. We just get on with our own lives. Or we willfully disobey His instructions for living in this world. We, maybe we shake our, our puny little fists in His face and tell Him, go away. Get lost. However we do it, we're all rebels. Because we don't live God's way. We prefer to follow our own desires and to, to run things our own way apart from God, without God. And this rebellious, self-sufficient attitude is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is saying, I don't want my identity, I don't want my purpose or my worth or my significance to be found in you, God. I'll find it somewhere else. That's what sin is. And the, the, the trouble is in rejecting God, in sinning as we do, we make a mess, not only of our own lives, but of our society and of the whole world. The result is misery, the, the, the brokenness, the disease, the toil, the conflict, the suffering, the injustice that we see around us. All of it, all of it goes back to this basic rebellion against God. Sin destroys everything. Everything. And so the question is, what, what will God do about it? Well, because He's good, because he's just, because he's loving, because he cares enough about humanity, he takes our rebellion seriously and he calls us to account for our actions because it matters to him that we treat him and we treat other people so poorly. In other words, he won't let this rebellion, this, this rebellion that destroys the goodness of all that he made, he won't let it go on forever. And so the sentence that God passes against us is entirely just. It's righteous and good because He gives us exactly what we ask for. We say, God, we don't want You. And He says to us, have it Your way. That's precisely what He does. His judgment on sinful people like you and me is to withdraw from us, to cut us off from Himself And he does that permanently. And since God is the source of life, and he's the source of all good things, being cut off from him permanently means death. And it means hell. God's judgment against rebels is an everlasting, godless death. That's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing to fall under the sentence of God's judgment. And yet that's the prospect that we all face because we're all guilty of rebelling against God. And so we say, is that it then? That's a pretty despairing message. It is a very despairing message. Is that it? Are we all just destined for death and everlasting ruin? Well, the answer is, if not for God's own miraculous intervention, if not for His mercy and His grace and His love, we would be. But 
God does miraculously intervene, and he is gracious, and he is love. And because of his great love and his generosity, he did not leave us to suffer the consequences of our foolish rebellion. He did something to save us. He sent his own divine son, Jesus Christ, into the world to become a human being. God coming to us, dwelling with us to rescue us. And unlike us, Jesus, as he takes on flesh, as he becomes a human being, he doesn't rebel against God. He always lived under God's rule. He always did what God said so that he did not deserve death or punishment. And yet he did die. He did die. Although he had the power of God to heal the sick, to walk on water, even to to raise the dead, Jesus allowed himself to be executed on a cross. Why? Well, this is the good news. And the Bible rings with incredible news that Jesus died as a substitute for rebels like us. This judgment of God that we sat under, this debt that we owed to God, Jesus paid it for us by dying in our place. And on that cross, he took the full force of God's justice against our sin upon himself so that forgiveness and pardon might be available to sinners like you and me. And it's quite undeserved by us. That's what grace is all about. Grace is favor given to those who don't deserve it. It is a generous gift of God from start to finish. And God accepted Jesus' death as payment in full for our sins. And he raised him from the dead. And so now our sins can be forgiven through Jesus' death. And we can make a fresh start with God. No longer as rebels, but as friends, as sons and daughters. In this new life, God himself comes to live with us permanently by his Holy Spirit. And we can experience the joy of a new relationship with God, restored relationships with others, and hope for a renewed world as the gospel reaches more and more people, transforming lives into what they were originally created to be. That's what we've covered so far. If you missed those first three messages, I encourage you to go back because I'll lay out in in greater detail kind of the meaning and the backstory and the biblical account of all of those things. But that's, that's the gist of what we've covered so far. But I want you to remember that gospel, this word gospel, means good news. And, 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 and all of this wonderful gospel truth, then, is only good news for me if what? Well, if I can have it, if I can get in on it. How do I get included in such a, a wonderful salvation as this? What makes this good news for me and not just for somebody else? You know, if I'm suffering from coronavirus, If I'm dying from the disease and I turn on my TV tomorrow and I hear that there's a cure, this cure has been discovered and it's being made available, that's great news, right? Unless, for some reason, I can't have it. That's why the New Testament is not only full of gospel truth, 
but it begins with a declaration of how we can receive it, how we can have it. It begins with a call to action that tells us how that truth can be applied to you and to me. When Jesus begins his public ministry in the very first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we see that his very first words recorded down in that book were these. Mark chapter 1, the end of verse 14 and verse 15, it says this, Jesus came into Galilee and he was proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God. And he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's a call to action that he gives us on the announcement that this salvation is coming to us. He says, repent and believe in this good news. There it is. That's the way the gospel can be applied to you and to me. It's wrapped up in these two simple yet very profound commands. We must repent and believe. So our task this morning is to unpack those two commands. I want you to understand clearly what does it mean to repent and believe and to receive then this gift of God's grace through his son. What is repentance? Let's talk about that first. So if, if by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, your eyes are, are open to recognize that you are a sinner who needs a savior, you have offended God, repentance is the right response of, of saying, if, if my sin is what separates me from God, then I hate my sin. And, and I want to turn towards the Lord. I want to forsake what I've been pursuing, where I've been finding my security and my significance, where I've been rejecting God. I want to turn from that and turn back towards Him. That's what repentance is all about. To turn from sin and forsake it for the sake of God. Another way of saying it is it's sort of like a, doing a 180, right? It's, 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 it's a complete turnaround in life. Acts chapter 3, verse 19 says, Repent then and turn to God, that your sins may be blotted out. So repentance certainly involves a sorrow of, over sin. But this is important. It doesn't just stop at sorrow. There's an action that needs to accompany our sorrow. And if we understand the full meaning of the word repent, it'll help us understand this action that we're called to. To repent literally means to change our perspective, to change our thinking, to change our mind in relation to how we see God and how we see our sin against him. It's a complete change of our thinking. It requires a change of behavior but repentance isn't the outward change of behavior itself, but rather it's the inward change that results in new behavior or new deeds. I think the, the book of Isaiah, specifically chapter 6, where he goes into see the throne room of God, is a really helpful picture of what repentance looks like. I hope you are familiar with that story. Isaiah is taken by vision into the throne room of God. He, he sees God for the first time, for, for who he is and all of his glory and majesty and splendor and holiness. And he says, woe is me, for I am un." done. I'm a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
What did he see? He saw God as he really is, infinitely holy. And then immediately, he saw himself in stark contrast to God. In other words, because he saw who God is, he knew right away, I am nothing like him. I am not like that kind of holiness and righteousness and goodness and justice. And so as a created and accountable image bearer of his maker, Isaiah immediately knows the image in me is broken. It's flawed. Whatever good he, he might have thought he had within himself was in that moment stripped away by this, this, this newfound perspective of what ultimate goodness is, what ultimate reality is. And so he says, woe is me. That's his confession of of repentance. His mind was changed. He had a new perspective on God and he had a new perspective on himself. That was an inward change of heart and mind. And then that inward change of heart and mind then led to an outward change of direction in his life. Listen to what follows that. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Then one of the seraphim, one of these angels that were around the throne, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Who will will go out and, and proclaim this ministry of the gospel now to the world? And Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. Send me. This is the ensuing act of obedience that follows repentance. Another way of saying that would be whatever Isaiah was doing before, whatever, whatever direction his life was going in up to that point was no longer of interest to him. It was no longer of concern to him. His newfound perspective of who God is and who he is And the receiving of this forgiveness of sin in God compels him to then follow God. Here I am, Lord. I'm your man now. Send me to do your will. That's what it means to repent towards God. John Piper puts it this way. He says, repenting means experiencing a change of mind so we can see God as true and beautiful and worthy of all of our praise and all of our obedience. And this change of mind also embraces Jesus in the same way. We know this because Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God. John chapter 8, verse 42. Therefore, seeing God with a new mind includes seeing Jesus with a new mind as well. I've I've talked about this a lot over the previous weeks. All of us are sinners. All of us are in need of this salvation and forgiveness. Therefore, none of us are excluded from this command that Jesus gives to repent and then believe. We all need repentance. Repentance is urgent. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all, all likewise perish. 
What does he mean by perish? He means that, that there is a judgment of God, a final judgment of God that will fall on those who do not repent. This is from Matthew 12, verse 41. Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. He's talking about the, the, the city of Nineveh in the Old Testament where the prophet Jonah reluctantly goes and proclaims the good news to them and the whole city repents. The whole city repents. And he says, these, these people will rise up at the judgment with this generation, with us, and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, Jesus is saying, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is here. Jesus, the Son of God, is warning people that the judgment to come, the judgment that we've spent time already defining as this, the wrath of God, He's saying it's going to come and he's offering escape if we will repent. And if we won't repent, he has one message for us. This is Matthew eleven twenty one. He says, woe to you. This is why the command to repent is such a critical part of the gospel message. Jesus preached that the long-awaited kingdom of God is now present it's come about in his ministry. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel, this, this good news is that the rule of God has arrived in Jesus to save sinners before the ultimate kingdom arrives when he comes back. Remember, we talked about he, he died, he rose, and he ascended to the Father, and he promised that he would be coming back. And that, that's called his second coming. That will be the day of judgment. So the command to repent is based on this gracious offer that's present to forgive and to propitiate, to substitute for our sin in Christ, like we talked about last week. And it's also got this warning that someday those who refuse to repent will perish under God's judgment. This is the demand of Jesus to everyone. Repent. Turn from sin. Turn to God. Be changed deep within. Replace all of your God dishonoring and, and Jesus belittling perceptions and thoughts and dispositions with God treasuring and Christ-exalting ones. If I see God for who He really is, I see reality. And I know that I'm not what I should be. And I say, whoa. That realization stops me dead in my tracks. And I turn around. I turn around and I flee my pursuit of sin and I run in pursuit of God's holiness in my life. That's the definition of repentance. Now, I want to talk about belief, because Jesus has two commands, repent and believe. Hold this idea of repentance, because as we go and talk about belief, and I define that briefly, then I'm going to come back and see how they, they come together. So what does it mean to believe? Another word for belief is in, in the Bible is faith. Have faith, belief. And, and it's, it's one of these words, faith, 
and even believe that I think has been misused for so long that, that most people don't have an idea of what it really means, at least not in the biblical sense. Faith or belief is not merely believing in something that you can't see or prove, like believing in Santa Claus or believing in Bigfoot, right? It's the biblical idea of, 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 of faith and belief is, is much stronger than that. It is it's reliance. It is trust in something that you count on to exist and to be rock solid and to be true and to be unshakable in its promise to you. That's what it means to believe. When we apply this definition of faith to the truth of the gospel, then it means that we are called to rely on, <clears throat> excuse me, rely on and trust fully in the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. We learned about these promises last week. Faith believes that Jesus is God who came as a human being, sent to be the rescuer who would save his elect people from the curse of sin. Faith believes in the rock-solid truth that Jesus is the perfect image of God who lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live. Faith trusts beyond a shadow of a doubt that his death on the cross was, was predetermined by God to count for me, to count as the propitiation for all human sin, to substitute for us as he absorbs the rightful judgment of God against our sin rather than us. He died in our place as an atoning, substitutional, sacrificial offering. Faith believes that the resurrection of Jesus from the grave three days later was the proof that Jesus was everything he claimed to be and that he conquered death so that we could be released from its curse. And faith relies wholeheartedly on the truth that the risen Savior Jesus now sits at the right hand of God in heaven as our advocate. So that even though we still sin, Jesus is able to make the bulletproof case before God that our transgressions have been paid. He can demand justice on our behalf because our sins have been transferred to him. They've been imputed to him and his righteousness, his perfection, his sinlessness has been transferred to us, imputed to us. So believing in Jesus is way more than believing about Jesus. We trust him. We rely on him. We stake our all on his righteousness and the promise that that righteousness has been counted as our own. That's what biblical faith is about. That's how the Bible defines belief. So Jesus says, repent, turn, and believe, stake your all on who I am and what I've done. Now let's, let's put those two things together because it, it wasn't just that, that he, he commanded us to repent alone and it wasn't that he commanded us to just believe alone. They have to go together, repent and believe. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to understand the parts and we've just spent the last few minutes doing that. But there are some things that, although they have wonderful parts, only fully satisfy you when you put them together, right? 
Repentance and faith are similar. They have to go together. Because there's an easy danger. There's an easy danger to to sort of place all of your focus and emphasis on, let's say, for example, the idea of repentance. That's all you talk about. There's a lot of people that fit into this category. They like to talk about rules. They like to talk about morals. They like to point out sin in probably more other people's lives than their own. They've memorized all the Bible passages that begin with, thou shalt not, right? And they talk a lot about sin. But but you know what they rarely ever talk about? Jesus or grace. If, if, If my gospel conclusion is to tell people that they just need to repent and I don't include that they that they also need to trust in what Jesus has done for them, his accomplished work at the cross, then I'm not preaching good news. I'm just peddling another burdensome religion. I'm just placing a moralism on them that can't save anybody. Just turn from sin and do better. But of course, we can't save ourselves. Or on the other hand, there there are people who love to talk about faith and what they believe about Jesus, but also never get around to include the necessity of repentance. Right? Jesus came and, and he forgives us all of our sin and, and he loves us and he, he does all these wonderful things for us and, and, and he, he provides comfort for me and security and peace, but that means I don't need to worry about changing my lifestyle. That means I don't have to really forsake my sin. I'll just count on the fact that he's just forgo- forgiven it all. Listen to what Greg Gilbert an author of a book on the gospel, says about that. He says, Faith in Christ carries in itself a renunciation of all that King Jesus conquered. Sin. It entails a renunciation of all that. And he says, And where that renunciation of sin is not present, neither is genuine faith. Neither is faith, because faith is in the one who defeated sin. James 2.14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 18, he says, But someone will say, Well, you have faith and I have works. I have good behavior. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works, James says. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So, the command is both repent and believe. They have to go together. And they have to go together in right proportion. What's our our motivation for this? I want to remind us, go back to who God is what God's like and what God created us for because I I want us to understand that our motivation is love. This is not a transaction. Don't be tempted to believe for a minute that the gospel is all about a transaction. God is holy. We've sinned. God offers His Son. We just place our faith in Him. We turn from sin. He imputes His righteousness to us. Transaction completed. Walk away. No. No. It's, it's about relationship. It's about God saying, we've been separated. We've been broken. And I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to rescue you because I love you. 
And so my response to God is, is not then transactional. It, it's, a, it's, it's a response of one who knows I've been loved. I've been shown mercy. I've been pursued and rescued. And therefore, when I know that this good God loves me still, what more could I do than to say, everything that separated me from you and your beauty and your love, I want nothing to do with that. I want you, God. I want to turn to you. I want to come back under your right and ordered and beautiful rule and authority because I know that's what's good for me. You are good for me, God. It's not a transaction. It's a relationship. God loves us. Listen to these two closing passages. I'll end with these. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, it's the kindness of God that's meant to lead you to repentance. It's not the transaction. It's the kindness of God. Titus 3, verses 3 through 8, I think say this as well as any passage in Scripture. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. See how that ties it all together? This is who we were. This is who God is. This is what God has done. It's grace. We didn't earn this. God saves us. He's merciful to us. And therefore, devote yourself to him. You've heard the gospel. We've covered now who God is, who we are, what went wrong in the world, what God has done about it in His Son, and what it looks like to respond to that gracious offer, to repent and believe. Will you respond? Will you respond? God loves you, and He is offering you life in Christ forever. I'm praying this week that those of you who have not yet responded will respond. And I'm praying for those of us who have responded that we'll be reminded anew of the grace and the gift that we have in the gospel so that we will walk in it, continually living a life of turning away from our sin and trusting in the one who loves us most, who saves us who advocates for us. Next week, we're going to finish up this series by talking about the kingdom of God. We've talked about God, humanity, Christ, response. We're going to end with the kingdom of God. What does it then look like when we've trusted Christ 
to live the Christian life, both now in this life and for eternity? What does the kingdom of God hold for those who belong to Christ? So come back next week and we'll explore that awesome topic together. Can I pray for you? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that you are a God who loves your people, who sent your son for us to rescue us from our sin and rebellion against you. Thank you that you don't make us earn this. We could never do it. But you offer it to us in, as, a, as a gift because your son has earned it for us. Lord, your love and mercy are unmatched. And so I pray, Lord, for my friends who are watching this message today, Lord. For those who don't know you, would you, would you open their eyes to see you as Isaiah saw you? To say, woe is me. But to follow you as you forgive sin and give us a new purpose. And would you help those of us who do know you to never, never stray from the gospel that we've, we've received. This is our whole life. This is what it's all about. Help us to trust in Christ every day and to live according to your good rule because you're worthy. You are worthy, God. And we're so grateful for your love. Help us to come back next week and be encouraged by what you have for us for all eternity in Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.